My name is Seymour Huberfeld, and I am one of the editors of Medical Moments, brought to you by the Foundation for Innovation in Medical Education. With today's talk, we begin a new series on technology in medicine. Today's talk is about obstructive sleep apnea. Have you heard this sound? We're all very familiar with it. It's the sound of loud, disruptive snoring. Sometimes it's just snoring, but other times this very loud, disruptive sound is a sound of a much more serious problem, and that is sleep apnea. What is obstructive sleep apnea? Obstructive sleep apnea is a common and serious sleep disorder in which the airway during sleep repetitively becomes blocked, causing airways obstruction. Reduction or interruption of airflow results in sleep disruption, drops in the oxygen level, and activation of the autonomic nervous system. This can happen a few times a night, or in more severe cases, several hundred times a night. Why is this an important problem? Why is sleep apnea important? We can divide the problems in two categories. The problems related to the fact that people are sleepy and the company that sleep apnea keeps. Sleep apnea causes what we call hypersomnia, excessive sleepiness, which can lead to difficulties at work, motor vehicle accidents, difficulties at home, and impairment in the quality of life. But it's also associated with other medical problems like high blood pressure, atrial fibrillation, strokes, heart disease, and this is a very common problem. How common is it? Well, in a study published about 10 years ago, uh, reviewing the epidemiology of sleep apnea, sleep apnea may affect up to 4 to 7% of men and 2 to 4% of women, and the older people get, the more likely they, to, they can have it. Like any other condition, we start by getting a history. Now, most people are not comfortable or not familiar with how to take a sleep history. You know, we know how to ask about chest pain or shortness of breath, but a sleep history is a specific history. We ask about conditions like how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? Does your sleep restore you? Does it refresh you? Are you falling asleep at work? Do you fall asleep when you drive? Do you ever feel like you're driving an automatic? How did I get here? Ask about snoring. That one, you need to, get, may get, need to get a history from a bedroom partner. Does the person stop breathing at night? Do they sleep quietly? Are they bouncing around the bed? You can ask the person, do you dream at night? And if you do, do you have bad dreams? Do you ever have dreams that you're being chased? or that you're being choked, or that you're drowning. Sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes the person doesn't really report that kind of a problem, but they're saying, well, I'm having trouble focusing at work. I'm having trouble concentrating. Sometimes they even get diagnosed as having attention deficit disorder. And can also present at, with symptoms of sexual dysfunction. I may ask my patients, what would you rather do when you, when you get into bed? If the answer is go to sleep, that may not be the right answer. Interestingly, sometimes sleep apnea can present as insomnia. The person says they're not sleeping. Their bed partner will tell they're sleeping, but they are reporting that they're up the whole night. The reality is their sleep is just fragmented and disrupted. And then there's some more curious um, manifestations. Um, I've recently referred, received referrals from ophthalmologists noticing that people have floppy eyelids. And as it turns out, people who have floppy eyelids often have sleep apnea. So literally the condition is staring you in the face. Now, a more detailed list uh, from, one of the, from one of the famous uh, sleep textbooks includes all the things I mentioned, including other things like getting up at night to urinate. So you ask the question, are they getting up at night to urinate or are they urinating because they were awake? Sometimes sweating at night, reflux at night, a pillow full of drool. 
Sometimes shortness of breath during the daytime is actually related to sleep apnea occurring at night. Sleep apnea keeps particular company. Many, if not most sleep apnea patients are overweight. Many of them, because it's related to blockage in the upper airway, will have problems with the sinuses. Many of them have acid reflux, often have hypertension, diabetes because they're overweight, and arrhythmias such as atrial fibrillation. Now, not all sleep apnea is obstructive sleep apnea. There is a less common condition called central apnea. Obstructive apnea, like the term implies, uh, is breathing against a closed airway. There is usually snoring and usually associated conditions such as obesity or, or large tonsils or long uvula. In central apnea, the airway is open. The, there is no report of snoring. There may be a report of uh, vigorous breathing or interrupted breathing. And it's often associated with things like heart disease or use of diuretics or, or people who are taking narcotics or head injuries. The reality is, as it turns out, even obstructive apnea is really coming from the brain. It's actually central. We know this because anatomical factors by themselves do not predict apnea. I can look in someone's mouth, they can have very large tonsils, and they may not have sleep apnea. And conversely, they can have what looks to be, while they're awake, a totally normal airway, and they turn out to have very severe sleep apnea. Not all sleep apnea patients are overweight, and not all obese patients have sleep apnea. So what does it have to do? Uh, I don't want to get into too, too much detail, but a lot of it has to do with the drive to breathe, something called loop gain, which is overshotting in breathing. So sleep apnea is as much about the brain as it is about the airway. Now, not all sleepiness is sleep apnea. Included are other conditions, such as narcolepsy, which is a genetic sleep condition, just the effects of chronic sleep deprivation, shift work. It's very important when getting a sleep history to find out what time is a person working. A complaint of disrupted sleep with choking and gasping at night also may relate to acid reflux and even nighttime asthma. How would, might we differentiate sleep apnea and narcolepsy? Well, first of all, sleep apnea is very common. Narcolepsy is not so common. Sleep apnea, the patients are, are sleepy, but they're not often exceedingly sleepy. They can manage. They get through the day. Maybe an extra cup of coffee or two, they get through the day. They often uh, dream. Uh, they may dream minimally. And typically, if they nap, the naps do not recharge them and not restore them. In narcolepsy, um, it, the patients may be obese, but most men commonly are not. Patients are incredibly sleepy. They cannot get through the day. They have to take a nap. They typically re report that the naps are restorative, that the nap, they take a 15-minute nap and they're ready to go. That's very unusual for sleep apnea. They often will report color dreaming. They may report a symptom called sleep paralysis, where they're sort of dreaming while they're awake, while they're in bed. They often have these very vivid dreams or hallucinations at night. And, they, and some narcolepsy patients report a very specific symptom called cataplexy, where they literally collapse under periods of emotional stress. Now, you can't always separate these conditions. They may coexist, but one should get a fairly good idea which condition one is dealing with simply by taking a good history. On physical examination, what do we look for? We look for weight issues, obesity, obtain the body mass index. And then there's a number, uh, NC-17. Usually we think about NC-17, we're thinking about the movies we don't want our kids to see. But in this case, NC-17 stands for neck circumference. So in a man, a shirt size over 17, or in a woman, a shirt size over 16, should prompt an evaluation for sleep apnea. 
You can examine the upper airway. You'll look at the that the turbinates may be very swollen. There may be a deviated septum. Examine the upper airway for nasal obstruction. The turbinates may be swollen. The, devi- the septum can be deviated. You can get that simply by obstructing a nostril and breathing. And you see if they're blocked. I often see patients with acne rosacea. We look at acne rosacea as a dermatologic condition because they have big swollen noses, but many of them also have blocked noses. We refer to something when looking at the oral airway as airway crowded, a l- large tonsils, a long, thick uvula. If you can't see the back of the throat when the patient takes, opens their mouth wide, there may be a problem. Actually score this. This is what's called the Malampati score, which anesthesiologists use, and simply tell the patient to open their mouth and say, ah, really widely. If you can see the back of the palate, that's normal. In a patient with a blocked airway, they simply you simply cannot see the back of the airway. And this is done without a tongue depressor. Okay. Um, after taking the basic history and, and a physical, there are various questionnaires that can be used to evaluate patients for sleep apnea. A typical one is called the Epworth Sleepiness Score. This is not a test specifically for sleep apnea. It's a test to evaluate for sleepiness. And basically, we ask the patient a series of eight questions asking them how likely they are to fall asleep during various activities. Uh, And the activities that are mentioned, sitting and reading, watching television, sitting and active in a public place, as a passenger in a car, and you can see the rest on the slide. And you score each one on a scale from zero, one, two, or three. Zero is they would never fall asleep. Three, they would always fall asleep. One and two are in between. If you you get a score of more than 10, that would be abnormal. Now, I'm not going to say this is an absolute test for sleep apnea. Uh, I have seen many sleep apnea patients who score much lower on this questionnaire, but it's certainly a, a good place to start. I will point out that if someone has a very high score in an Epworth score, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, you might want to go back and ask some narcolepsy questions because that's not the most typical score for a sleep apnea patient. Now, a typical questionnaire used by anesthesiologists in a pre-op evaluation is this questionnaire called the STOP-BANG. And STOP-BANG is an acronym for snoring, tired, observed, blood pressure, uh, the B for BMI, age, next circumference, um, and gender. It's a very sensitive questionnaire. I think just about everyone I know who's a man over 50 will fail the stop bang. The question is where to make the cutoff, and that's still a matter of debate, but it's a good place to start. If you combine these two questionnaires, these are good ways for a primary care physician to pick up on sleep apnea. Um, There are a variety of different terms that we use in grading the severity of sleep apnea. The term apnea means no breathing for 10 seconds. There's another term we use called hypopnea, which means reduction in breathing accompanied by either arousal, which is disruption of sleep, or a drop in the oxygen level. And there are a variety of different scores for how much oxygen, the, how much the oxygen level has to drop. We then calculate what's called an index, the apnea hypopnea index, or AHI. That's a number you might see on a sleep report. And the way we calculate that is we add up the number of respiratory events, the apneas plus the hypopneas, and we divide it by the sleep time. So, for example, if a patient has a sleep six-hour study, they stop breathing 60 times, and they slow down 180 times, that adds up to 240 events. You divide it by six hours, comes out to 40, 40 events per hour, and that's severe sleep apnea. What do we mean by an apnea? Simply this. This is a, sh- a screenshot from a sleep study, and looking at the curves... Uh, on this end over here, I'm not going to teach you how to read a polysomnogram. You can see breathing, and all of a sudden, it goes the what's called the flow sensor uh, over here shows a flat signal. There's no breathing, and you can see there's movement. There, the chest is moving, so there's no airway going going in, and the chest is moving. That defines an obstructive apnea. 
And when we get these, these number of events, we add it up and we divide it arbitrarily, sleep apnea into what's called mild, moderate, or severe. Um, and I should point out that the severity of the condition does not correlate with the severity of symptoms, meaning that there are patients with very mild sleep apnea who are very tired, and there are patients who with severe sleep apnea who are totally unaware of their condition. So there are other measures of severity can be used in sleep apnea. I mentioned the apnea apnea index. There's a less restrictive measure you might see on a sleep study called the respiratory disturbance index, which includes events that don't quite meet the threshold for ap- for apneas or hypopneas. There is another measure, which is the time spent with an oxygen saturation of 90%. The, the low oxygen levels may correlate better with cardiovascular risks such as stroke. Now, to diagnose sleep apnea, you need to do a test. You could do either what's called a polysomnogram, which is a laboratory test, or more commonly, as we're doing now, we're doing more and more of our testing at home. Polysomnogram, you can see, is very elaborate testing. There is sensors on the brain, there's a belt on the chest, the belt on the belly, and, and a, a clip on the finger. And after we wire the patient up like this, we expect them to go to sleep. Home test is a little bit simpler. You can see uh, two different types of home tests. Um, the one on the left has a device on the forehead with a little cannula in the nose. Uh, the other one is a more common type that uses respiratory belts. It's These are much simpler. Now, in comparing them, the laboratory study is very extensive. It gives complete sleep staging. Um, it's a bit of an unfamiliar environment and a lot of intrusion to the person. It is the defined standard. It's relatively expensive. Home testing is simpler. It's relatively rudimentary or no sleep staging. It's primarily a respiratory study. It provides similar results in the right patient population. It is significantly less expensive and you have the advantage of the ability to do multiple nights. A home sleep study costs about $400 to $600. A laboratory study costs closer to $2,000. And there are a variety of different kind of home tests, including ones that primarily measure breathing, ones that um, have some sleep staging. There are ones that just sit on the hand using a technique called impedance tonometry. And there are many other kinds of, uh, of sleep studies. I should point out that home sleep studies do not or may not pick up more subtle type events. For example, there's a condition called upper airways resistance syndrome, which is a, mo- a form of sleep apnea primarily seen in women. And this, these events, the patient doesn't actually stop breathing. They just have disrupted sleep due to increased respiratory effort against the closed airway. These kind of events are may not be seen on a home test. So a home test is not the end of the story. If a patient you suspect has sleep apnea and they do a home test and it's negative, you have to use your judgment and they may need to do a laboratory study. So you do your sleep study, you make your diagnosis, and now we want to talk about treatment. So what are some of the treatment options that we have? Let's start with the most basic one, weight loss. Many, if not most, sleep apnea patients are overweight. Now, there are, as I mentioned before, there are thin people with sleep apnea and heavy people without sleep apnea. But if someone has sleep apnea and they're obese and they lose weight, they generally get better. How much weight loss? Generally speaking, it is a minimum of 25 to 30 pounds before one can expect to see a significant improvement in in sleep apnea. In my experience, it tends to be more of a threshold effect meaning the patient will lose weight for a period of time and there may, no, may be no effect and all of a sudden they'll get to a certain point and then the degree of, of, of sleep apnea begins to decline. The next option for therapy is what we refer to as PAP, positive airway pressure. And we have a whole alphabet soup of this, including what's called CPAP, which stands for continuous positive pressure, BiPAP or bi-level, which is two-level pressure. There are, the newer devices are what are called auto-PAP devices, which are self-programming. Other options for treating sleep apnea include oral appliances, 
positional therapy, surgery, or even some, um, some degree of medical therapy. Let's talk a little bit about CPAP, which is definitely the most common form of sleep treatment for sleep apnea. CPAP has been around for many years, and the devices have been evolving. Uh, you can see here how the devices have changed. Uh, on the left is an older sleep apnea device. Very nice device, but it's a little bit intimidating. It looks very medical. Uh, on the right is a newer device. It looks a lot like a radio. It certainly has uh, a more pleasant appearance, and it does more. It has the ability to transmit data. It has the ability to uh, control the humidification better. It e even has the ability to be programmed remotely. CPAP has to be applied, well, I shouldn't use the term CPAP, PAP, positive airway pressure, needs to be applied through an interface. And we have a variety of different kind of interfaces, such as nasal masks, or what we refer to as face masks, which cover the nose and the mouth, or what are called nasal pillows. These are the main category of devices. There are a whole host of specialty devices, including masks, masks that cover the entire face, a device called CPAP Pro, where the pr pressure is connected to a dental piece, masks made out of cloth, and even masks that fit just in the mouth. The interface, most of the time, is not so critical. The purpose of the interface is that the patient should wear CPAP. Now, how does one prescribe CPAP? So there are basically two ways to do this. One is something called the titration study, where the patient goes into the laboratory and they apply the positive pressure and they start dialing it up until the point where the apnea goes away and that gets you a number. Or the patient can be prescribed what's called autopap, which the machine is programmed with a range of pressures based on the clinician's judgment and the, the device is capable of regulating, ramping the pressure up or down against various endpoints. Um, it avoids the night in the laboratory once the patient is on autopap, they can either be left on autopap or they, you can reprogram the device based on the data to a fixed pressure because some patients actually don't like the variation in pressure during the night and they are more comfortable being on a more fixed pressure. What is BiPAP? BiPAP or bi-level pressure is useful to in patients who have, require higher pressures. What the device does, it shifts from a higher inspiratory pressure to a lower expiratory pressure, allowing the patient to breathe out. Um, it was very popular before. Many of the newer CPAP or AutoPAP devices have the ability to actually do this already within the CPAP mode. So uh, often I'm seeing fewer patients who are getting bi-level. To get bi-level, primarily, uh, you need to, use, to get a sleep study, whereas autopap can be done basically at home. What's good and what's bad about CPAP? What's good about it? CPAP works. CPAP is very effective. There is excellent long-term data about the effect of CPAP on symptoms of sleepiness, about outcome studies. You can monitor the patient on an ongoing basis. The patient could come in every few months. You can look at their data. You can look at their compliance. You look at their efficacy. You can monitor it. And there's data supporting beneficial effects on blood pressure, atrial fibrillation, and stroke risk. What's the problem? You have to wear it every night. You're dependent on the patient to put it on and take it off. The equipment requires upgrading. There's disposables. There's replacements. Many patients can't sleep with CPAP, and for some patients, it's simply too much treatment, particularly those with mild apnea. Let's talk a minute about CPAP and cardiovascular outcomes. This is a very uh, important topic that there has been a lot of literature on lately. For many years, we have been under the impression that CPAP 
and other forms of PAP do have a positive effect on cardiovascular outcomes. On this slide here, you can see the upper curve represents patients with severe sleep apnea over a prolonged period for cumulative uh, uh, cardiovascular or neurological events. And the lower graphs represent either mild, milder patients or treated patients with sleep apnea. You can see a huge difference in outcome over time where the patients with, with severe sleep apnea are treated with some form of PAP or not. And I think this is the consensus of most people feel. Now, there was a recent study that came out called the SAVE study, which did not show a large difference between CPAP and usual care. And people have been showing this data and questioning the value of CPAP over the long term in the management of sleep apnea. The problem with this study is that study excluded the most severe patients and its criteria for acceptable CPAP was only three hours a night. So many people do not feel that this particular study represents uh, the consensus opinion in sleep apnea, and I think most people feel that CPAP does have a beneficial effect in, uh, on long-term health, uh, at least in most patients. The problem is that many patients cannot or will not use CPAP. And the bottom line is patients will not use CPAP simply because it is good for them. They may try it, they may use it for a period of time, but unless they are benefiting from it, and unless they are comfortable with it, they are not going to use. They are not going to use it. Estimates of usage are about forty to fifty percent, and about twenty percent of patients use CPAP, but they don't use it enough. And most patients overestimate their CPAP use. In fact, even the good sleep apnea patients, typically they'll sleep with their device for four to five hours a night, and then they'll take it off, and they'll sleep for one or two hours without their device. And that you really can't get that by just looking at a data download from a CPAP machine. So how can we work on that? Well, we can educate patients. We can try to fit them uh, for better masks. We can do studies during the daytime to desensitize them. In the beginning, sometimes patients might need sleep, sleeping pills to help them get used to the CPAP. But we do need to give people alternatives. And the most common alternative for sleep apnea is this, which is a mandibular uh, advancement device, otherwise referred to as an oral appliance. Oral appliances basically are a two-part device, one part that fits to the upper jaw, another part that fits to the lower jaw, and it causes the lower jaw to protrude a few millimeters, which advances the back of the tongue, increasing the breathing space in the back of the throat. There are many advantages to oral appliances. They're much less cumbersome. There's much less maintenance. Overall, there's better tolerance, and patients tend to use the oral appliance for the entire night. And if you look at patient satisfaction, it is either equal or the same as CPAP. What are the disadvantages? A good dental appliance must be custom made, which requires multiple dental visits and can, can be expensive and not fully covered by insurance. The overall efficacy of the dental appliance may be lower. Oral appliances do not eliminate sleep apnea, they improve sleep apnea. This may be offset by the fact that they are worn for more hours per night, and there is little data for uh, their efficacy on long-term sleep apnea complications. Whatever data that there is does show equivalent efficacy. And there are some problems with appliance therapy, such as pain in the jaw, salivation tends to be a problem in the beginning, it can lead to problems with alignment. Another option for treating sleep apnea is positional therapy. Many patients have sleep apnea that it was primarily positional, it's only seen, or it is much worse when they're lying on their back. And the benefits of sleeping on one side have been known for thousands of years. It was recommended by Maimonides over uh, almost a thousand years ago. Um, how can we do this? Um, the simplest technique is to uh, have a patient uh, take a get a t-shirt with a pocket, put a tennis ball in it, and have them sew up the pocket and wear it backwards. We can get a little fancier with uh, custom-made devices such as a Zoma pillow, uh, which is a strap-on pillow, or uh, this device, which is called a Remedy. 
which is, uh, again, it's like multiple tennis balls in the back. Um, now, the person doesn't need to sleep with this forever. They need to do this for a number of weeks or months to get used to sleeping on their back, and they train themselves to sleep on their back, and then maybe once or twice per month in order to maintain it so they don't unlearn their lesson. There's even a fancier device one can, one can get, which a uh, person wears this around their neck, and every time uh, they, they're on their back, it gives them a little electrical shock on the back of the neck to get them to turn over. The, the advantage of a device like this is that it has downloadable capacity. But none of these devices really um, provide any form of long-term data and any form of long-term monitoring. And this is the kind of therapy that you can only use for patients perhaps who have mild apnea, who don't have cardiovascular complications, who is, it's primarily a symptom problem, or you, when you have absolutely no alternative. What about surgery for sleep apnea? Um, the classic surgery, which is called a UPPP, uvulopalatopharyngoplasty, where the soft tissue of the upper airway is is is, um, is removed, and perhaps combining that with a correction of a, of a of a deviated septum, this surgery works, but it doesn't work as well as we'd like it to use. So, more aggressive surgery, uh, where the jaw is, re is reconstructed, uh, definitely seems to work. But there are very few patients that opt for such a, uh, a drastic form of therapy for the therapy for their sleep apnea. A common surgery for sleep apnea is bariatric surgery. Bariatric surgery definitely works to make sleep apnea better. There may be a risk um, that the sleep apnea will recur even if the patient does not gain back any weight. Inspire Sleep, which is a new implantable device for sleep apnea, will be the discussion of our next talk. Let's discuss briefly sleep apnea and anesthesia. Much attention has been focused lately on the preoperative identification of sleep apnea. Sleep apnea may increase the risk of anesthesia complications related to the to airway problems or the problem what's called resedation, where the patient basically wakes up from anesthesia, and if they were unmonitored setting, they could theoretically stop breathing uh, as uh, the as the anesthetic goes back into the into the bloodstream. Current recommendations is for extended postoperative monitoring in patients with sleep apnea. Uh, there is little or no evidence that preoperative sleep apnea treatment changes outcomes. There may be some data on that in the bariatric surgery population, but it is not very robust. Sleep apnea in women. Generally, we think of sleep apnea as a condition of, of middle-aged overweight men, but as it turns out, sleep apnea in women is very common, and it can present more subtly. It can present as insomnia. It can present as, uh, as I mentioned before, as upper airways resistance, which is uh, a less dramatic form of sleep apnea. In addition, the devices need to be modified. Women's heads tend to be smaller than men's heads. Therefore, you need masks and straps that are appropriate for women. Sleep apnea is very common in the elderly. And treatment of sleep apnea in the elderly presents unique challenges. First of all, sleepiness in general in the elderly tends to be a common problem due to medications or due to poor sleep. Some degree of sleep apnea may be normal in the elderly population. The elderly population are not as comfortable with the technology, with dealing with the CPAP machines, and they may be overwhelmed by it. And they may have dental issues that will, for all practical purposes, preclude the use of oral appliances. In summary, sleep apnea is an important medical condition with effects on quality of life, cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, traffic safety. It is a treatable problem, and treatment of sleep apnea improves quality of life and may affect overall cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. Thank you for your attention.